Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29, finishing off that chapter, which finishes off the sermon. But what we've, you know, as you guys are turning there, what we've been, uh, what we've entitled this series is The Good Life. And it's, it's more or less a play on words of what Jesus is talking about in this sermon. You know, the good life is the life that everyone is after. It's the vision of well-being that we've been taught to create or chase in our society, um, in this town, in this community. Um, yet it's usually on the other side of the fence where the grass is always, always appears greener, right? We always want what we cannot have. It's the dream that captivates our imagination uh, just as often as it breaks our heart. And many of us might agree that it is, it's an ideal to reach for, but one that our current lives hardly exemplify. It's as evasive as it is alluring. This is the, this is the good life that we've been kind of talking about. But yet the Bible, what we've seen here in the Sermon of the Mount specifically, uh, presents a far more satisfying picture than what we just talked about. See, Jesus explained that a taste of the good life is here with us right now. And over the last 30 sermons since September, we've seen that in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus has um, he's given us supernatural examples and situations and case studies of the kingdom of God breaking forth in this present age, the good life of heaven coming into our world. And we've really modeled this uh, last nine months around that. The good life of the kingdom looks a lot different than expected, and it always does. Jesus has challenged us, or hopefully he has. He's challenged everything we thought we knew about ourselves, the world, and even Christianity itself. And what Jesus' intent was and is in the Sermon of the Mount is to open our eyes to the reality of the kingdom of God as it invades our space, our relationships, and our privacy. Alluding to the fact that our hope just to make it through the day must come from outside ourselves. And this good life that Jesus speaks about here is just that, having come down from God to humanity The kingdom of God has been on display in Jesus' teaching throughout the Sermon of the Mount. And prayerfully, you've you've experienced that. The Lord has spoken to you in that, and and you've seen the things of what he said as as very different than the ideal good life that so many of us or or society would tell us we need to have. And this morning, like I said, we're, we're ending it. We're finishing off this continuous sermon today with verses 24 through 29. So why don't you read those with me, and then we'll pray. Jesus speaking, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished 
or amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Father God, as we look at this text this morning, it's so significant. This is the ending of this sermon. And God, we, we believe that you have some significant things to say to us, to speak to us through your word this morning. We believe that this is your word. It's God-breathed and God-inspired. And it's profitable for teaching and correcting and repute and, and training in righteousness. And we believe it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that this is your word. And so, God, we give you our attention. We give you all of our attention. We want to hear what you have to say. Soften our hearts to receive your word. And God, we want to be like the wise man who hears your every word and does it. And that builds his house on the rock that when the rain falls and the floods come and the winds blow that our house shall not be moved. We pray, Lord, that we would have obedient hearts this morning. And that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit. Pray that I would be your mouthpiece, that it would be your words and not mine. And God, I pray that you'd give us a tremendous insight of why you concluded the Sermon of the Mount with this, in light of all that you spoke before. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst, and we ask for more. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is Jesus' conclusion. This is his ending, and conclusions are important. Like anything, the first few lines or the, or the last few lines of anything are, are usually everything. You know, of a book, of a letter, of, I don't know if you've ever cheated that way, just looked at the front of a book, oh, the first page, read the last page real quick, I don't know. I don't know if I want to read it. It's, it's, it's not always like that. I, again, I'm, I'm joking, but for the most part, conclusions are are really trying to get your strongest point across. It's trying to remind you, uh, it's, it's trying to leave you with, the author's trying to leave you with exactly what he wants to leave you with, the most important thing, it's a conclusion. And what Jesus does here, the context of what Jesus is referring to is the 106 verses, right, they're not verses when he speaks, when he gave this sermon, but they're verses in our Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is referring back to specifically those 106 verses, the 30 sermons that we've taught over the last nine months. But he also is broadly referring to the entirety of God's word. He's, he's referring to the entirety of scripture with this analogy that he's giving. And if for a moment we forgot who the author was, uh, verses 28 and 29 remind us. Uh, when Jesus finished saying these things, you can, you can read. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As the crowds heard this teaching, 
the Sermon on the Mount, we call it, in these 106 verses prior to today. The crowds were astonished, literally amazed. And, and they weren't only amazed at his content, even though it was amazing content, but it was the authority in which he spoke. It was the confidence, it was the delivery, it was the assurance that he gave in what he said, in everything that he said. See, he was teaching in a way that they had never seen before. And they said that, this is different than the scribes. The scribes were the religious teachers of that day, and they had, turned, they had heard thousands of teachings by the scribes. But, but see, scribes never claim authority of their own. See, scribes are only being faithful to the tradition they received. They're recommunicating the teachings they received. And the only authority that scribes had was the authority uh, of the teachers they were quoting. See, in and of themselves, the, the, the scribes had no authority. They were always quoting others. And they were always teaching others' teachings. But what Jesus did was he spoke with confidence and assurance. And what Jesus did was he was speaking for God as God. He was speaking for God as God. On the Mount of Beatitudes, on the hill above the Sea of Galilee, the Sermon of the Mount, he was speaking with all the authority on heaven and earth. And it was his authority given to him by his father. And it was God's words in which he was saying. And the crowds were astonished and they were amazed and they had never heard something like this before. And so Jesus concludes this teaching, right? I think if you read it in its entirety, it's 12 or 13 minutes, right? It's three chapters of, of our Bible. <clears throat> he concludes it and he says, therefore, he starts off verse 24 by saying, therefore, the reason that all, the reason I've said all of this stuff prior, I, I want to sum up now. I want to make sure you understand. I'm going to conclude all that I've said. And he finishes the sermon by comparing two men with two foundations with two very different outcomes. He describes one man, obviously, the wise man, who builds his foundation of his house on the rock. And the other, the foolish man, builds his foundation on the house of sand. I'm sure you've heard this many times. I'm sure many of you have memorized this and, and you know it and you cling to it. And when you read this parable, we can, we can kind of get where Jesus is going. We can get it. Right when we hear that a foundation's built of rock and a foundation's built of sand and there's water involved, we get it. It's, it's <clears throat> the outcomes of this analogy that Jesus is giving all his hearers, the outcomes are very rudimentary, but they're very different, right? The wise man builds his foundation of his house on rock, and it withstands the tremendous elements, and his house does not fall. And the foolish man, well, he's foolish, 
And so he builds his house, the foundation of his house, on sand. And it crumbles away and it washes away and it's destroyed when the rains turn into floods accompanied by wind. And it says that great is its fall, the foolish man's house. You know, at a simple reading of this, this analogy seems almost too basic. It just seems like, really? That's the, this is the conclusion right now? This is the conclusion of this famous, the most famous sermon you've ever taught, Lord, that's written down in Scripture. This is the ending? And you almost want to say, like, Jesus, I, I get the house thing. I won't build my house on the sand. I got it. Everyone knows that. But that's, but that's the exact point. Because Jesus, he, he was a Jewish carpenter. Most likely a builder of houses. And what he, he's doing here is he's using a very common, even elementary level example. So that everyone, including children, could understand. That's why Jesus spoke in parables and used analogies is because he wanted to help us understand lofty spiritual things with easy, tangible, practical examples. And he actually masterfully does it here because even a five-year-old understands what happens when you mix sandcastles and water. Right, Even the kids back then 2,000 years ago on the banks of the Sea of Galilee would know the effects that water, wind, and rain had when they played in the sand next to the water. Right? Even, even kids can understand the effects that Jesus is talking about. And again, if you're going to ask like a little kid right now, if you're going to ask in this analogy, hey, I'm trying to build a house. We'll just say a little kid likes the gingerbread house, okay? We want to build the gingerbread house so that it doesn't fall over. Should we build it on a rock or on sand if we're going to pour water on it? Kid would be like, what are you talking about? The rock. Remember the beach, Dad? Remember? (laughs) It's a good joke, huh? But, But the question I... He's doing this masterfully, and he's drawing us in, and we understand, and we get your analogy, Lord. But why? why? Jesus, why do you do that? Why? In your conclusion of the most famous sermon you ever gave, why would you do that? And in a simple reading, you might, you might miss it. But it's because of what would cause someone to be foolish or to be wise. See, literally in the Greek, those words uh, wise would be prudent, and fool is actually where we get the word moron. It's literally that strong, like, like dude, you're a moron if you do that. Like, you're, a fool, you're a moron. But, but the wise builder is a prudent one, and so many of us, myself included, can make the end of the Sermon on the Mount only about the foundation and where we build it. Or that's at least how we remember this parable or this analogy. We quickly go to, yeah, what Jesus is talking about is where your foundation's built. Because when storms come in your life, Jesus, you better have your foundation built on Jesus. Because if you don't, your world's going to crumble. That, that is a, that's true. That is truth. 
And I'm not denying that truth and the power and God's promises to us. But, but, that's, but that's actually not the main point that Jesus is trying to get across. See, it is true that Jesus is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. Psalm 18, 2. Thank you, Jesus. We can abide in the shadow of his wings. Psalm 91, 1. He is an anchor to our soul, Hebrews 6, 19. He does calm the storms of our lives, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. And he is to be our foundation, nothing else. That is, those are truths and promises that we should build our lives upon. But that's not the main point here. That's not the main point of what Jesus is getting at. The main point is actually what makes the person foolish or wise. What leads to their foundation being good or bad? What leads to a stable foundation or an unstable one? But what Jesus says prior to even the foundation, what makes up the foundation is really where the gold lies. Let's look at that. Let's look at our text real quick. Matthew, 20, Matthew 7, 24 through 29. It starts off that, that both men, the foolish and the wise man, they both hear the words that Jesus spoke. They're, they're no different that way. They both heard everything Jesus said. And they actually both build a house. And from the outside, it would seem like that house would be exactly the same. Right, Because unless there's cracks in your foundation or your, your house is kind of leaning to one side, you can't really tell if your foundation's good or not. Obviously, unless you have someone come and inspect it. But, but from the outside, there's no way that we can know if the, the, the foundations are different. And, and so at first glance, these men are the same. They, they, they heard everything that Jesus said. They both built the house. From the outside, they look exactly the same. He couldn't tell what the foundations were like. But that's not the issue. The issue or the difference or what's pivotal, pivotal, excuse me, or tantamount is that one man does what Jesus says while the other man does not. Absolutely crucial before the analogy comes doesn't matter what it is, the analogy. doesn't matter yet. What matters is that both men here, one acts and does what God says and one does not. That is the point of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The question that we have to see that comes from this is, do we obey Jesus' words when we hear them or do we disobey because according to what we do with God's word determines the type of foundation we lay for our lives. Let me say that again. According to what we do with God's word determines the type of foundation we lay for our lives. And looking back to last week, if you were here, and, and as much as that text last week, Matthew 7, 15 through 23, just previously, would say that our obedience or our disobedience bears good fruit or bad fruit in our lives, uh, which Chris so wonderfully spoke on. What that means is that our lives either are transformed and reflect God's image uh, or, or they're not. You see, our actions, 
will speak where our heart is, right? Our actions will be an overflow or should show signs of where we are with Christ, right? That was last week. So our obedience bears fruit or our disobedience will bear bad fruit. That, that was last week. <clears throat> but this week, it, it's different. See, our obedience or our disobedience to God's word will always have a positive or negative effects on our lives. See, whether we do what God asks of us or not will have a varying and great effect on the outcome of our lives. In as much as the outcome for the two men's foundations were very different, so too will our lives look different whether we obey or disobey God. Let me get a little drink of water real quick. That truth that there's outcomes to obedience or disobedience has and is always true. Uh, We see that throughout scripture. Um, They they get a bad rap a lot of times, but there's some good things too. But we're gonna look at the children of Israel. Right, God's people... We'll just take the children of Israel for one example, right? The, the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible is the story and the description of God's laws for God's people, right? It's God's plans and it's his purposes and it's his instructions for them to be set apart and live for him. And it's the story of how they do or don't do that. See, see God told them uh, to do and to not do a lot of stuff. I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, there's seven chapters about one thing, and you're like, I get it. I get it. Please change the subject. But nonetheless, what, what the first few books of, our, our, of God's word would tell about it is it's really riddled with the children of Israel's obedience and disobedience. Unfortunately, mostly disobedience. But, but here, here's some examples. Uh, the children of Israel escaping from Egypt, Moses obeyed God to speak to Pharaoh and to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He obeyed God and the result was escape from Egypt. That's a good result. Moses <clears throat> disobeying God, he, he, they just finally get over there. God says, speak to the rock and you'll get water doesn't speak to the rock, hits the rock two times, and then claims credit for it. Moses disobeys God. But then they're obedient to set up the tabernacle where Israel worshiped and sacrificed exactly how God wanted it. And because of that, they experienced God. And there was incredible fruit to their obedience. But then Moses left for a little while, right, to go see God up on the mountain, and the children of Israel were disobedient, and they built a golden calf and worshiped it besides God. Obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience. Then they get to the promised land, right? 400 years of prophetic history is about to happen. The spies go into the land. They come back, and there's only two good reports, and they do not trust God. They do not enter the promised land. They're disobedient. And the consequences to that one were steep. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and everyone over the age of 20 died. 
crazy. But then they came finally to the promised land again. And this time they obeyed God. And they walked across on dry land and they got to enter into the promised land because of their obedience. And I could go on and on. Scripture is filled with obedience and disobedience and the effects of either. And there's tangible effects. I mean, there's real outcomes that vary greatly depending if we obey God or if we don't obey God. And just as much as the children of Israel thousands of years ago experienced the consequences of, I guess the outcomes, I should rather say, of obedience or disobedience, which were pretty profound differences, obviously, we too... 2015 in this room right now, the same principle applies and is active in our lives. See, it's still true whether we obey, hear, hear God's word and do it, or we disobey, hear God's word and don't do it. There are, there are and will be positive and negative effects. Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter seven here, he leaves it pretty vague. All he says is, if you're obedient, uh, you'll withstand the storm and your house will not fall. That's all he says. And then if you're disobedient, your house will not stand and you'll have a great fall. The house will be destroyed. But to help us put some maybe more <clears throat> tangible, real words to the effects of obedience and disobedience, the Bible describes it in different ways. And you'll understand what I'm saying in a second. See, obedience, would, another would be glorifying God. If you, if you obey God, you glorify him with your actions. The opposite would be sinning. If you disobey, you're in sin. You're not glorifying God. You're, you're, you're in rebellion to him. You're either honoring God by obeying or you're dishonoring God by not obeying. You'll either experience God's presence or you won't. If you obey God, you'll reap blessings. And if you don't, if you disobey, you won't receive God's blessings he has for you. That, that, that's true. And if you obey God, you'll get or you'll receive or you'll experience all that God has for you, the fullness. But if we disobey, but if we disobey God, we're gonna miss out. We're gonna miss out on what he has for us. This is actually, this, this, this is pretty rudimentary. You read scripture, you don't read much of it. You mean, you read the entirety or you don't read much. It, this truth will come forth. But we cannot afford to miss it or take that lightly because I know that it happens to me. I justify my disobedience by thinking it's not that bad or the consequences won't be that bad. But just as much as we all do. I, I need a sobering. I need, I need a sobering when it comes to the effects of obedience and disobedience in my life. Because not only all that I, I just said, but the truth is that we're created to worship, glorify, and honor God. We're created to do so. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, you know, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
That, that's our created nature. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're created for, is to glorify God with our lives. What glorifies God is obedience. What worships God is obedience. What gives God glory is obedience. See, church, we were created to be image bearers of Christ, to be like Christ, to imitate Christ, to be free of sin, unstained by the world. We're created to be worshipers. We're created to be worshipers. Every single one of us, by God's design, is created to worship him for all of eternity. And once we're saved and our lives are transformed, when we obey God, our obedience to God which would be specifically not sinning and honoring him and obeying him, is, is sanctifying to us. Meaning, meaning it's, it's helping us to return to our design, what we were created for. See, when we disobey God, we're turning from that and we're living a life in a way we weren't designed to live. We weren't designed to live in rebellion. We weren't designed to live in disobedience to God. Have you guys ever used something, even for a short time, in a way that it wasn't designed to be used for? What's, what are the effects of that? I know that for me, it's either I don't have that thing around I need, or I'm just too lazy to go get it, right? Like if I have a project going on at home and I know that I shouldn't, that I only have these tools and maybe the tools over there, I don't have it, but let's just see if one of these works, right? That's always what happens. Um, <clears throat> maybe for me, not always. You guys are more wise and prudent and I'm more of the foolish man. <clears throat> but like prying something open, let's look around. Easy to go, screwdriver, well, most of the time, if it's something that you can't pry open with your hands, a screwdriver will bend. No longer can the screwdriver be used. It's broken now. Or, oh, wow, I have a knife in my pocket. Let's use that to pry open that thing. Nope, that knife breaks. Now I have no knife. Or, no, some of you guys might do this, and that's okay. But maybe think about it. Going down the road and you see like the smallest car imaginable pulling the largest trailer. That's not supposed to happen. Oh no, but I got the tow package put on. They said that was good. That car is not designed to do that. Have you ever seen people's, I've seen whole people axles come off cars. Frames bent. Trailers gone gone trucks get a truck get a proper truck <laughs> little car I'm so, and I get, I get it I had to do it I get, I get it I get the reasons little car should not pull huge trailer it's not what it was designed to do and there's many things that are going to go wrong um, anyway those are some obviously funny, common examples. I'm sure a lot more come to mind for you. But the truth is this, of those stupid examples. There's a point where the thing that you're using for the wrong purpose 
will become damaged badly or will break entirely. It's not doing what it's designed to do. It's just not doing what it's designed to do, and so you're going to break it. The truth is, disobedience, not doing what God says, goes against our design, and damage occurs. You may not see it, you might not think it has, but it'll catch up to you. Or maybe it's doing damage that you don't even know about. But disobedience goes against our design, and damage occurs. And Jesus said it would. And in this analogy, he said, man, you're going to fall, and great's going to be your fall. Another truth that I alluded to, you know, another effect, a negative effect from being disobedient is missing out on what God has for you. See, obedience doesn't just have to be in the negative form. Because I think that's what we think of obedience. We always think of obedience of us as us doing what we're not supposed to do, Right? We're breaking the rules. God says don't and we do it. Um, and we can wrongfully view God's word as a bunch of do, no, do nots or don't do's. That's, that's what we can wrongly view God's word as. And maybe even you, before you got saved, uh, like, like a lot of us, would be like, man, you know, God's word, or if I, if I give my life to Christ, it's just gonna stop my fun. It's gonna smother me. Um, it's going to make me bored. There's just so many rules I need to follow and so much stuff I can't do anymore. And we always think of obeying God as a negative thing. But obedience can be in the positive form just as much. There's many times in God's word that God says, do. He says, enjoy. Have freedom. Have love. Have peace. Experience me. Come to me. Speak to me. Ask me. Those are all in the positive form. Those are all him asking us to do things. And disobedience would not be doing those things. Right, right, there's, there's, there's a negative sense, don't do, but then there's also things that God says do. Please do. Enjoy that. Be blessed by that. And in turn, when we are disobedient, we fail to get all that God has for us. We fail to know God and see him move in our lives in the way he wants to. Uh, last week, my, my daughter turned two years old. It's really fun, super cute age. I mean, it's crazy, obviously, um, but it's really enjoyable. She's saying a lot. She's interacting. It's this really neat relationship. And yesterday, you know, we just got together a few of her really close friends for a little, you know, park, a little party in the park. You know, first birthday, I don't know if everybody does this, but it just seems like we just went big. Invite the whole world, let's do everything, just everything we can, first birthday. First kid, first birthday, I think you kind of do that. But come around this birthday, number two, we're like, "Ah, we want to celebrate you, but I mean, how about just a couple friends at the park for like two hours? Mellow, low-key, not many people. But uh, being who I am, uh, I just wanted to make it really amazing and really fun. Because my wife's like, hey, just bring just a little bit of stuff. Like, no, no, I got, I got it. I'm going to bring a lot of fun stuff. 
So it ended up being, you know, we go to a park with a playground and then bring the snacks and the treats and the cupcakes and there's some, all of a sudden there's balloons, then there's toys, then there's blankets on the ground, then music is playing. Uh, we even invited a friend of ours that has like a really big Burmese mountain dog, just as like fun, you know? <laughs> like play with the dog. Just, that's fun right there. So Eva and all her friends get there and there's... Uh, there honestly is like a carnival of fun going on, right? And, and all, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of just trying to be like, look at all this stuff as they come up. I just want them to have fun. I want them to have a good time. And they're like two years old, so they're like really creeped out by me. Because <clears throat> I'm like, look at all the fun. And they're like, whatever, dude. <clears throat> um, but then all of them, one by one, went to the cooler that had ice in it with, you know, like juices and waters, and all they wanted to do was pick up the ice, look at the ice, put it in their mouth, spit the ice back in, repeat. Like four of them on the cooler, right? Just, just eating, spitting, eating, spitting. And, and, and it, I mean, it was really funny, but me being the dad that's all sweaty from just setting everything up, and, and looking beyond the, beyond the ice chest and seeing everything... I knew how much more fun they could have. I, I just, I'm like, look at what's behind the ice chest. Like I'm doing things like shutting the ice chest a little bit, like saying things to them. Like I'm going to Eva and being like, Eva, remember, the doggies here, everything's here, they're friends. And so I'm beginning to kneel down and describe everything that, uh, that was not in the ice chest, right? Everything's better over there. And obviously me, I'm using my hands. So I'm using my hands with her a lot. Uh, and all she can say is, no, all done. No, all done. Like everything else over there that's amazing, I'm done with it. All she wanted was the ice. Then it began to do the same thing to her friends. Because I'm like, maybe if I can get some of her friends out of here, she'll go play. And, and you know, obviously, uh, I think I have a picture. Do I have a picture? I don't know if you can see this. This is a picture. Because I, I took a video. I'm like, Eva, I'm going to show you. On your second birthday, all you want to do is the ice. She actually listened for a second and went for the coffee stir sticks. <laughs> a little bit better. But, you know, Eva and her friends were so caught up with what they thought was best when the whole world around them um, was just, you know, beaming with other things going on. And they just, you know, chose to fail to obey what I was telling them to do. But my intent, obviously, was like, there's so much more that you cannot even believe that's here. But you're just so caught up with the eyes. And obviously, that's, that's a funny example, but, man, it, it, it spoke to me yesterday because I had been studying for this sermon and it's, it just spoke of, of the Father's heart towards us. See, God has so much in store for us. His plans and his purposes and his will for our lives. Right, Ephesians 3.20. Now to all glory to God who's able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. The psalmist would describe what God's presence is like by saying, better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand elsewhere. And so many times we're just caught up with the ice. 
We fail to obey because we think we know what's best. We think we have it together. We're gonna do that for you later, God. We're good. And we hear God's word, but we fail to obey. But man, God is, is, is he's a perfect, all-knowing, heavenly father that made us, each of us, uniquely perfect, and he knows what's best for each of us individually with the personality we have. Uh, He knows your deepest needs. He knows our deepest desires, our inadequacies, our insecurities. He knows what's best, and everything is his. He's able to give us everything. He's able to, he knows what's best for us, and he has so much in store for us. And when we say yes to God and we do what he says, when we obey his word, we follow him, we trust him, allowing him to direct our life. And we don't miss out. And we do get the fullness of what God has for us because just like me and my daughter yesterday, I I really did know what else was there. And knowing her, I'm like, you're going to like the dog better. I know it. And God, being perfect and far and loves us far more than any father could love any kid here on earth, knows us and our deepest desires and knows what's best and has so much for us. And so you see where I'm getting at. So you see where I'm getting at here. Obedience with God should never have a bad taste in our mouth. Obedience to God is allowing God to change us and transform us into what we're created to be, a worshiper who has an intimate, loving relationship with their creator and Lord. See, the moment that we were born again, the moment that you were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of of his beloved son, the moment that you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confessed that Jesus was Lord, you're saved. The, The moment that all this happens, we've been given the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter one would tell us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise at the moment of conversion. And the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the power to obey. Romans 8, 1 would tell us that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. See, it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Galatians 2, 20. See, we do not try to obey God in our own strength any longer. It won't work. We cannot. But we can obey God's word and we can deny sin and we can experience Christ and we can obtain the fullness of what he has for us and we don't have to miss out anymore on what God has in store for us because we've got the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. The Holy Spirit is our strength. It's the power of God. Ephesians 5 would tell us that we're to be continually filled. We're to keep asking for God's strength daily in order to obey. So that excuse is out. It's too hard to obey. It's too much at stake. I can't do it. You don't know. We can by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We can be the wise man. 
that hears God's word and obeys it. Not only do we have the power to obey, but we have the perfect example of obedience. See, we have God's word, which tells us of God's son. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived and walked this earth the same that we do. But he did not sin and he always obeyed God. Jesus would only do the will of the Father. In John 5, verse 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus obeyed God the Father perfectly and he would only do the will of the Father. This was tested in a profound way on the eve of his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the eve of suffering the most horrible, brutal death that you could possibly that could possibly be done to you. Three times in that garden, he prayed to the Father, if there's any way this cup would pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. The Father's will, the Father's, the Father's will was for Jesus to be a substitutionary death to save us from our sins and restore the broken relationship to us, us between us and our Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is that ultimate example of complete obedience to God the Father. And he was obedient unto death for our sakes. Church, at the end of this sermon, Jesus once again draws a line in the sand that he's done so many times before in the Sermon of the Mount. In previous weeks, he talked about the broad and the narrow gate. There's only two ways. I mean, there's only one way to me, and it's a narrow way, and broad is the gate that many will enter. And there's only good fruit, and there's only bad fruit. There's no in-between. Your life's either gonna bear good fruit or it's gonna bear bad fruit. And this time, in the conclusion of the Sermon of the Mount, he says there's only two choices. You're either a wise man or you're a foolish man. You either obey God and his word or you don't. In church, so how will we choose to live our lives? Will we be like the wise man who obeyed God and in turn built him a firm foundation on the rock? Or will we be like the foolish man who disobeyed God and built his hand a house on the sand? Do not leave here thinking you have to try harder to obey God. If anything, you may need to surrender and say, God, I cannot do it on my own. I need your power. Holy Spirit, empower me to live for you and obey your word. And if you're having trouble figuring out what obedience may look like, look to Jesus, our ultimate example of obedience to the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that you are the one that saves us. It's by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no man can boast.
that we are your worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we might walk in them. This isn't a question of salvation today, Lord. This is a question of obedience after we know you. And what your word would say is that there's good works in front of us that you set before us that we might walk in them. So God, do some heart work with us right now. We want to be obedient. We want to say yes to you. We want to deny ourselves. We ask, Lord, that we would turn from our rebellion. We'd turn from disobedience. And that we'd run to our heavenly father that has so many good things for us. So much in store. We ask that we would be more than hearers, but that we'd be doers of your word. That the moment that we read your word, we wouldn't hesitate, but we'd say, yes, Lord, have your way with me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. If that's what you want, God, yes, have it all. So, Father God, as we spend some time now musically worshiping you, we ask that we would praise you for who you are, but that you'd also, when we commune with you now, when we meet with you, you would change us. That as we pray with one another, that that walls would be torn down, and we'd repent and surrender sin, and we'd turn to you, and We'd say, Lord, I give up. I need your strength to obey. I need your strength to walk with you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you empower us? Would you give us the strength to obey? We want your power, God. We're too weak. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We're in need of you, Holy Spirit. We're in need of you, Holy Spirit, to obey. So empower us to be the wise man, to be the obedient man. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.